Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists, academics, intending to inspire you and maybe challenge you with ideas from the margins, the periphery. Why? Because that's where the ideas which will shape tomorrow are hiding today, on those margins, the periphery. This week, I was very pleased to have a conversation with Martin Aylward. I've known Martin for quite some time as my own meditation teacher and guide. Martin has been practicing meditation for well over 30 years now, practicing and teaching for a very considerable time. He's got a great story. It's worth checking out his website. Martin disappeared off to Asia age 19 with a one-way air ticket, I believe, and then began a very immersive and deep journey into Buddhist life and Buddhist practice. It's taken him from Southeast Asia, like I said, Thai monasteries, Himalayan monasteries, living with gurus up in the mountains, incredible, inspiring story, and he shares his teaching generously and with real great humour. So we're super thrilled to have him on. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Martin, thank you for joining us on Peripheral Thinking. Hi, Ben. Nice to see you. So I guess I might describe you as teacher, advisor, creator, because that's the sort of the various kind of realms in which I know you. But how might you better and more usefully intro yourself? How might uh, Well, rather than listing the various things I do, I would describe myself maybe somewhat surprisingly as a kind of hyperactive, almost compulsive doer who somehow to my great good fortune, stumbled into the contemplative life. <laughs> not really, certainly not expecting that, not really looking for it, and found that amidst the busyness of loving being engaged in the world and doing stuff in the world and creating things in the world, that somehow there was this, to actually be able to rest in the centre of that and meet my own mind and meet the busyness of my mind and the compulsions of my mind. And then it turned out, oh, the neuro all the neuroses of my mind and the fixations and the bad habits of my mind was a, was a complete revelation. And so I don't really feel like my... If I were to give you my CV, I would look like a natural contemplative, you know. But I don't really feel like a natural contemplative. Uh, it's like the contemplative part of my life is a kind of blessed compensation for the general tendency to be what my parents used to call a blue-arsed fly, you know, which means <laughs> somebody who kept buzzing around without stopping. Yeah, I can definitely identify with the blue-arsed fly tendency. I'm really interested in the role of Buddhism in a world where there is a mindfulness everywhere. Because, of course, mindfulness is all over. We see it in apps, we see it in services, we see it in businesses, we see it in companies, we see it in books. I was reading a thing which is sort of unrelated, but I guess points to a similar thing. A writer who writes a lot about stoic books and he was saying that now there is a new stoic book published every day on kind of Amazon and I think that sort of talks to some sort of bigger sort of trend that was going on and so today is very much this kind of relationship between Buddhism what role for Buddhism in a world which is mindfulness and I guess in a sense uh, it talks a little bit to my kind of own journey which I've explored practice with you and with with kind of others over the last sort of 15 years and trying to kind of find ways of sort of being able to articulate the value the benefit of that for other people. People. And knowing that, you know, lots of good friends of mine and listeners and all sorts have dabbled with mindfulness. And I was really keen to understand or and to explore, you know, what's the value of Buddhism in a world where everybody or lots of people are dabbling 
in mindfulness? Let's, I would start by, what do we mean by Buddhism? Because, you know, Buddhism could mean lots of different things to lots of people. It would mean different things in different Buddhist cultures, some of which wouldn't recognize what I do, particularly as being very orthodox Buddhism. But Bud means awake, right? So Buddha is one who's awake. So Buddhism means awakeism. So if we just make that translation, right, rather than, you know, be, trying to explore what it might mean to be Buddhist, because then we hear the ist part, and we have associations with exotic temples or Asian or berobed, shaven-headed monastics or something. Buddhism really means awakeism. So the practice and the understanding and the exploration of the most fundamental aspect of being human which is that we're awake, you know, we're conscious. And we're not just conscious, but we're we're self-conscious. We can actually, you know, right now, you can be listening, whoever's listening to this, and you can know that you're listening. You can reflect on the listening. You can explore the listening. You can recognize the mind that's doing the listening. And therein is like a portal to the endless mysteries of consciousness. Both the sort of philosophical mysteries of what is it to be human, to be conscious, to be awake, but also the more prosaic mysteries of like, how come I just keep getting tripped up by my own thinking? You know, how come I keep getting into these circular loops? How come, oh, I can't sleep at night because of worry or stress? How come I keep getting lost in replaying versions of the past and why it was like that and how it could have been different? even though I can never make it different? How come I keep, you know, projecting endlessly into a future that I can never actually organise, etc., etc.? So that's what the awakism, I would say, of Buddhism is pointing to. Everything from the immediate mysteries of what it is to me be confronted with my own existence and my own habits to the more kind of wide-open mysteries of, like, wow, consciousness... (laughs) And I guess that's that's interesting because I know we've spoken about it before, this kind of idea that maybe people find their way to it because they're trying to wrestle with their own minds. And in a way, I think I was probably so wrestled with my mind, I didn't even realise it was the mind which was the kind of issue. I identify with the things you're talking about, like, you know, being awake at night, playing over things, being stuck in the same loops, the same worries, the same kind of habits, the same problems, in a sense, following me around. So I guess that's essentially what we mean by the kind of wrestling with your mind is that is the source material in a way. And that's the point at which people get interested, right? Mm. Whether whether it's Buddhism or whether it's headspace or or some other kind of contemplative process. There's a prior stage to that where one's not interested in those things. One's just interested in the sort of outer problems. You know, if I could solve that problem, then I wouldn't be stressed and I'd sleep well. Oh, and you're so caught up in why did that happen and why did they say that and why did I do that? Then you don't stop to consider that your mind is generating all that drama. You know, you're just so absorbed in the drama. And then at some point, people get it like, oh, I'm creating drama. And that's a painful realisation in a way, that one can't just keep blaming everybody else in the world for oneself, you know, that you have to take responsibility. It's painful to see that. And yet it's also the place where possibility opens up. And that's where people say, okay, well, maybe some meditation app, maybe some contemplative practice, maybe there's some real useful 
nurse to me actually training my mind and getting to know my habits and therefore starting to understand and free myself from those habits. Mm. What is it then, do you think, which has happened over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, which has seen this kind of mushrooming of interest in, well, I guess we would say the interest is in contemplation, is the interest in meditation. You know, what is happening, which meant, which has, you know, driven all of this sort of apparent change happening? Mm. So I think there's two particular currents. One of them is that we live in the heavenly realms, you know, and what that means is, because many people might not think their life resembles the heavenly realms, but we live in a degree, not all of us, of course, very far from, but you know, let's face it, probably most of us listening to this, we live in a degree of material convenience and comfort that you get to the end of the materialist delusion. So for a while, one really thinks, if I had that, if I could organise the outer systems and circumstances of my life to be fully convenient and fully comfortable, then I'd really be okay. And then you realise, oh, well, actually, I've managed to make things fairly comfortable and fairly convenient, and I'm still stuck with my own mind. And that's exactly the same condition of northern India two and a half thousand years ago. You know, the very fertile Indo-Gangetic plain, food scarcity ceased to be an issue. People were living really well. And then this whole big, what's called the Axial Age, all across Asia and the Middle East, where there were these very sort of stable and bountiful material conditions, this great philosophical and artistic age developed because you're not so worried about the meaning of life when you're hungry and uh, you've got no shelter. So once those things are well established, there's a sort of the deeper longings of the human heart come out, both you know, whether that's artistic longings, philosophical longings, spiritual longings, etc. So I think that's one that we, you know, in some ways it's very different than northern India two and a half thousand years ago. But that similarity of us being in a degree of kind of material stability and plenitude that then gives rise to a deeper questioning. And then the other current is actually the sort of loss of meaning that's happened. The, the religions used to provide a, a, a discourse of, that gave us a sense of meaning of, oh, what's my place? Why am I here on earth? It's God's plan, etc. And they, those religious narratives just don't speak to people anymore and they may speak to some of you you know listening to this but they just they're just increasingly irrelevant in the wider social discourse and it turns out that some longing for meaningfulness for a life that my so that my life feels like grounded in something you know with a certain depth and a certain richness that's really important. It's a fundamental human need, like, you know, food and medicine and shelter, etc. Um, we, we, we somehow long for depth and connection. And we're in an age where the traditional sources of depth and connection have run out. They've become irrelevant. Their stories are out of date. And so I think what we're seeing with mindfulness and etc. is a secular, you know, a, a, a culturally appropriate secularised version of that search for depth and meaning. And we tend to do it through apps, partly because they're the technology of the day, etc. But also because we live in these very individualised societies. And so we're more likely to engage, even though these are traditionally taught in a more communal setting, you know, people living together, practising together, exploring together. 
we live in very individualized ways and so we tend to engage in individualized forms of practice which you know, suits our individual lives but also has its invita- its limitations which we might get into as we continue talking yeah absolutely so we'll just call it headspace as the shorthand for for the apps which obviously there are other apps available so those things a response to our searching for meaning a searching for depth a searching for connection how effective are they at kind of satisfying that need well it they're extremely effective for some people less effective for others and completely ineffective for others still you know it just it just depends so i have a, a meditation app as well i live in france and i have a french language meditation app with about 600,000 downloads now so it's you know it's got a certain momentum in france and for instance This is the story I tell often of this guy, Vincent, who was on a flight to Hong Kong. And our app is integrated in all Air France long-haul flights so that people can... Anyway, he came across this stuff in the back of his seat TV. He'd never thought about meditation. He wasn't looking for meditation. But he thought, oh, maybe this will help me relax on the flight. And he started to put the headphones on, listen to the meditation instructions. And it was like a revelation. It was like... Like I just said, oh my God, I can train my attention. I can explore consciousness. When he landed in Hong Kong, he downloaded the app, started using it. And a couple of months later, he came along to see me in Paris when I was teaching a weekend there. And a month after that, he came to the retreat center where I live and sat a week-long silent retreat with me. And a few months after that, he gave up his whatever that corporate job was that had taken him to Hong Kong. And he retrained to work for a non-government organization doing humanitarian work in Africa. So, you know, he started off with, you know, the simplest of access to an app and it utterly transformed his life. So it's not really about what the app does. I think it's more to do with the readiness or the interest of the person in the moment. So I think apps can be a brilliant entryway to some simple meditation technique, one thing. And then second thing, to that sense of possibility. Oh, I can engage with my mind just rather than just being at its mercy. On the other hand, because the apps want to be really accessible and they don't want to carry too much Buddhist baggage or other cultural baggage, they can be a little over-secular and it and actually end up underselling the possibilities of meditation. Because in wanting to make it accessible, they're sort of selling the sort of less stress, better sleep, uh, uh, nicer relationships, and, uh, you know, good digestion (laughs) or something. And, okay, maybe those things are happy side effects. But really, it's about a radical... or at least the possibility of a radical shift in the way one understands oneself and reality, a radical shift in the way one inhabits, you know, one's own sense of self and reality, a radical shift in one's priorities, you know, from having, getting, doing, becoming, to, to, well, sounds a cliche, but to, to being, you know, to recognizing that this moment is all we've got, that one's whole quality of life really and this is true for everyone listening to this right now, that your whole quality of life is dependent on how you're meeting this very moment. And that's always true. And we can see that we're pathologically wired towards fussing about all kinds of other moments and other places and other situations and other possibilities. And that really just that drives us along in a, in a general state of anxiety, dissatisfaction or hope. 
you know, but hope is a hope is actually a painful condition, even though it can be charged with enthusiasm. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that's going to be great. You know, there's a certain kind of when one really sees into that, is there's a certain painful kind of postponement in it. You know, like the carrot and the donkey. You know, pursuing this elusive sense of there, there, at the cost of. Oh, here. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you, the thing that was coming up as you, you were mentioning there, that journey that Vincent went on, you were talking about, where his life is on one track and then, the, you know, the kind of cascading things that happen. So effectively, the life, the about turn of his life. And I wonder whether there is a thing around the kind of apps or the kind of secular thing, which obviously feels a bit safer. Because actually, like as you were talking there, is one of the kind of resistances or obstacles then to people engaging with the deeper practice is the fear potentially is going to turn my life upside down and all of the kind of anxiety that might come with that. Yeah. And of course, what it may be that one's quite struggling with and dissatisfied by one's life the right way up. And yet one's still you know, fearful of the unknown quantity of having one's life turned upside down, as it were. But it seems to me you don't actually, if I'm really honest, you don't get to choose that. You know, it, some people, they have some sort of awakening, right? Bud, Buddhism, awakism. They have an, uh, an awakening which, just despite their wishes and preferences and ideas, precipitates a radical change in their circumstances. But And for other people, there can be a radical change within their circumstances, Another student of mine who's a very senior cardiologist in Sweden, huge responsibility, you know, spends his life with his hands in people's hearts, you know, life and death, very busy as a senior consultant. And um, started to meditate, came on retreat with me, had some really, you know, extremely important and radical and deep shifts in understanding and his relationship with life and his understanding of things. Nothing changed whatsoever in his outer life. He continued to do the work he was doing, uh, continued in his family life in the same way. But somehow the way he was experiencing all of that opened up in all kinds of beautiful, amazing ways. And then for still other people, because I don't want to suggest that it should be or it has to be a radical shift, either of circumstances or even within circumstances. For other people, it's not so radical, but it's a sense of, oh... You know, and, and it's like finding an inner orientation. Where, whereas before, all I had were these outer signposts called career and you know various ideas of success and how I thought my relationship or love life should be, etc. And I'm trying to follow all these outer signposts. And they tend to, you know, they lead us either round and round or they lead us to ever-receding destinations. You know, where one never, there is no perfect relationship, there is no perfect success, etc. And so for others, it's not that radical shift, but it's like, oh, learning to find and follow inner signposts, you know, just an orientation of oh, this is a wise direction, a useful direction, a sane direction. And so there's no, nothing radical seems like it's happened. And yet the life feels different because it feels like I'm actually able to tune into and follow the inner compass of my heart, if you like. And that there's a, some sense of kind of depth and realness to that 
where I'm no longer just pulled around in this trying to live up to what I think the world expects of me. If you bring the awakeism, awakeness into your life, that actually one of the transformative effects is the work that you're doing will need to become more service oriented because i'm just kind of curious with somebody like the you know like the cardiologist that work is service isn't it like you say he has hands in hearts uh, so he has he has life and death at his kind of fingertips there is something implicitly service oriented about it and i'm curious whether you know if you kind of open the door to this journey that we're talking about whether that is inevitably one of the things that comes so to will get you to think differently about your work to shift to that direction i think in some ways one you can't explore your inner life without confronting or and questioning your values you know and so it's not to say that people will inevitably give up their and their life and go forth to become charity managers or doing some kind of particularly noble sounding work but if you've gotten, if anybody's gotten to the place where they're interested even in meditation, and let's face it, some are not interested. If you're not interested at all, please turn off this podcast and go and find something more interesting to listen to. <laughs> really, I don't have the view that people should be interested in this. You can't force that. But if someone's got to the point where if they are still listening now, <laughs> well, let's assume that you're somewhat interested, then you know, you can't separate out one's one's moral explorations and one's personal and one's psychological and one's emotional explorations. So a lot of people, actually, that might be one of the catalysts. They come to something like meditation because they're looking for some meaning, because their working life maybe feels like it's in the service of values that don't really give them that meaning. You know, it's, you just feel like you're... You're generating more of the same in society. You're selling stuff to people that you're not really convinced they actually need or that you really want to be pushing on them, for example, or, or whatever that might be, or actively participating in the, the, the commercialization of products or of services or of, of materials that you know feel unhealthy in some way. So... It's not that there's any kind of moral dictature here that you should be doing one thing or another with your life. But if people are starting to have those kind of questions, even though, again, it can be uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to really enter a place of transition and change and questioning. But in the end, it's much more uncomfortable to not enter that and to stay in something that you actually don't feel good about, that you feel compromised on, and that you're something that you're always trying to turn your attention away from the acknowledgement that this doesn't feel okay. So, yes, change is uncomfortable, but not changing is more uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so with that, do you think I would embark on that same change journey if the extent of my kind of relationship was with a, a kind of headspace, secular type guidance? What what do I not get if that's the extent of my engagement? I mean, I'm not so familiar with all the dimensions of headspace and I don't want to I don't want to be critical of it because hey, it's a great it's a great practice tool for people. But essentially, I think what those apps are doing is they're giving people some basic meditative tools and techniques. And that then serves to further the interest for those who, for whom it does and the, the wish to 
know more, explore more, etc. And then there are a lot of other resources for that. You know, whether it's uh, committing more to meditation teachings, and there's, you know, I can give you lots of propaganda for various things that I do in that space, or or exploring in one's reading, or just staying close to one's experience. That's actually the most natural outflow of meditation. Isn't necessarily meditating more or meditating all day, but it's. What one's training in sitting quietly and, you know, keep bringing your attention to just the feel of sitting here and the feel of breathing. It's not that you're learning to sit and breathe, right? It's that you're learning to stay close to your experience rather than just bouncing around in in, in your reactions. And so therefore you get up from your cushion and you stay close to your experience. And so you start to actually notice during the day where your mind is, what your intentions are, whether you're actually relaxed and open and engaged with what's happening in a simple way, or whether you're tight and reactive and creating all kinds of drama out of the situation. And that's the actual, it's not so much what you do, whether you go on this or that retreat or whether you adopt this or that practice. I would say the techniques of meditation are secondary. It's the process of the willingness to explore and the deepening capacity to explore, the growing interest to explore. That's what really starts to yield awakening, to yield transformation. Whether that's radical transformation or gradual, whether it's transformation within the work and the life circumstances that one has or, you know, something more more wild than that. That, like I say, I don't think you really get to decide. You, you, you're one's opportunity is to keep taking this step and you keep on taking these steps and then you find out where the path where those steps lead you really can't plan in advance and i think that's true just anyway in ordinary life if anybody listening to this again if you just look back from 10 years ago and maybe if you were went on a very particular career trajectory you trained to be a doctor and you were a gp but you wanted to specialize and then you trained in that okay that aspect maybe of your life you could see going forward but really most of the aspects of your life could you have really mapped them out in advance you know could you have planned to get to where you are now no we retrospectively apply that logic we say oh i decided to do this you know as if i was actually running the show but actually we're just responding to circumstances or reacting to circumstances to opportunities and to hopes and to fears and to neuroses and to that which we're drawn by and that which we're wary of and along the way our life happens and we end up taking the credit for having constructed our life but actually it's not really like that it's much more like life is living through us rather than we're in charge of the life we think we're living what you're talking about there that kind of raises really fundamental questions about the kind of story that we believe like you say particularly lots of people running this they might be running their own organizations have created their own thing this idea that i'm in charge that i'm deciding what to do i'm kind of leading this i'm the person sitting on top of the bus or at the front of the bus or wherever the right place on the bus might be and so this kind of idea that i'm not those things of course is massively kind of challenging and in a way then kind of raises the question well you know is a little bit of what the kind of awakeism is talking about is it then a passive thing or is it an active thing Hmm. neither 
beyond active and passive, I would say. So, you know, you can get caught, like you say, just when you were saying that I'm the maker of, I'm the creator, I'm the founder, I'm the director. Oh my goodness, sounds exhausting. No. So, I'm, I, for example, I've, I'm the founder and director of seven different companies in three different countries. So that, oh, that could sound a lot. It could sound busy. It does sound busy to me. But if I was, if I got busy trying to, you know, be that person or do that thing, then it would be exhausting. But it's too much to then go the other way. Oh, I'm not that. I'm not that. It's just life throwing, flowing through me. So. What I would say, actually, to unhook from being active is not to go to the other extreme of being passive. And of course, now active isn't enough. Now we've got this new bizarre word since the last few years, proactive. It's not now we've got to be proactive, you know, really forcing the issue, really imposing the sense of self, you know, on, on everything. I've got to be proactive. So I would say the to wake up from the tyranny of being active isn't to collapse into being passive it's to become responsive you know that's the difference receptive and responsive so what does that mean receptive is actually that medic that meditative quality right open to sensing what's happening like i'm receptive actually feeling what's happening including what's happening around me what's happening within me what stories i might be telling myself what tension patterns I'm subtly creating that are so habitual I don't usually notice them. Oh, receptive. Receptive to what's going on in others, receptive to what's going on in oneself. And so the quality, the feel of that receptivity, which we call meditative awareness, is a kind of listening. Not with the ears, but with the whole being. A sense of listening to life. Receptive to life. And the more one sort of slows down and listens, the more one finds space when you first stop and listen all you hear is the noise of your own mind right oh, i'm busy with your <laughs> your hopes and fears and neuroses but to get used to to being receptive so that you can actually listen actually feel actually sense what's going on and there's a kind of that's an infinite trajectory it's a, a miraculous unimaginable thing the way that quality of receptivity can open up and then arising out of that re receptivity is a responsiveness that doesn't feel like I'm doing something. One doesn't have this, the impression, I'm making the decisions, I'm deciding, I'm acting. I'm certainly not being proactive. You know? <laughs> and, yet, and yet, one might look as if one's being quite dynamic, quite busy, quite right? Because one's responding, rece re receptive to what's happening and responding to what's happening. And I find that language actually to be quite helpful to point out a sort of middle way between activity or proactivity or hyperactivity on the one sense, which is, you know, pathological in our society. We hyperactive. And then passivity, which we can, you know, clearly isn't helpful, that sense of a kind of collapse. And that's often the fear. The fear is, if I stop driving myself forward, I'll collapse. I'll never get out of bed. My kind of inner sloth will take over and I'll just eat pizza and rot on the sofa. What you're kind of pointing to is actually that's not the thing that happens. The thing that happens with the calm, with the space, with the openness is a receptivity and then an ability to respond. And responding might mean creating, might mean it might take many different forms. Yeah, 
and generally called unimaginable. You know, it's unimaginable to the one who's flip-flops between hyperactivity and then collapse or passivity. It's unimaginable. It was to me, definitely. That kind of responsiveness that actually where there's a, you know, the, the, it's a much more bottomless well because I'm not doing it. One has the feeling, one might not say this because it sounds a bit pretentious, but one has the feeling is that there's a kind of life's intelligence is doing the receiving and doing the responding, you know, and I'm not so investing it in it. Certainly the self-referentialness you know, is not is not there. Whereas usually we get very, we get that sort of narcissistic seduction. We're seduced by our own image. Oh, look at me, I'm doing this, you know. And when it's going well, we can get very self-congratulatory in that. And then when it's going badly, we can get very self-condemning. All that stuff's exhausting, you know. So receptive, responsive, there's just no self-measurement in it. No need to be a certain way, no push to do a certain thing, no blaming or shaming oneself for when things don't go right. Just moment by moment, receptive, responsive, receptive, responsive. Oh, very sane way to mm. meet life. Yeah. So for the person who did identify with the I'm doing all of these things, so we kind of introduced into the idea, okay, this sort of aiming for this kind of middle way, this sort of third way, this receptivity, this responsiveness, I like that too, has a, a kind of good kind of feel to it. So these people also kind of, you know, massive planners, right? Constantly planning this week, planning this year, goals, targets, all of this sort of stuff. What role for any of that in the new responsive third way that we were just talking about? Well, I, I could kind of describe that in a way, but the the problem is the planning mind will try to figure its way into that. Oh, what would it be like then to plan if I wasn't so busy planning? And what's that? You know, trying to plan for non-planning. Yeah. <laughs> so what I could say is that we start to notice that a vast majority of our planning is neurotic. You know, even even if it's even if it's fired by enthusiasm, it doesn't necessarily feel neurotic. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, that'd be great. We just invest way more energy than useful than is useful or necessary in that planning, and. You, if you want to check if that's the case, you can see to what extent do you get carried into that planned for moment as if it's real so that you actually end up investing more attention and more energy and more hope and more in the, that imagined future scenario than you are in, in where you actually are, where all the source of actual fulfillment and ease is right here. So... It's not some narrow or flaky idea of just being here and now where no planning happens. Clearly, right, we have to plan to schedule this meeting together to speak to each other. But planning can be done simply, right, without the actually projecting the idea of oneself forward in time, if that makes sense. Thinking then about the, the secular 
alternative or the, the, the secular route versus the awakish route, uh, if we can say such a thing. Because, you know, the this idea of the kind of person being on the bus, I'm in charge of everything, I'm making all the decisions, this obsessing with the self, with me, like I'm the architect of all this, the hero, the saviour, and then the one that also gets run over by the bus. So part of what we're talking about is a route out of that dying by self thing. Is the kind of secular route, does that also point you out of that route? Or are there limitations around that? I don't know, you know. I mean, if I'm really honest, I'd say my sense is that, yes, that one's limited, really, in the secular... Like, I know a lot of people who have discovered meditation in a secular form through a mindfulness class or an app or something and then continued in that form and have been sort of wary, you know, and totally understandably, sometimes wary of a kind of religiosity of deeper practice forms. Sometimes they've got their own religious trauma in the background of ways that they, that, you know, they experience religion in manipulative or even abusive ways. I mean, if we look at the history of the churches, you can see or you know, most religious institutions you can see plenty of grounds for a wise caution or wariness around religiosity and buddhism's no exception right to that i don't want to suggest that buddhism's some kind of super fabulous religion where there's no problems you know anything anything that gets ossified and institutionalized you get hierarchies and you get power games and and you get uh, you know, corruptions you could say just inevitably and yet, I would also say that anybody I know who's really gone deeply into this stuff, and I think you're an example of that, Ben, you know, however much one wants to situate oneself in a kind of secular world and a secular worldview, you just can't avoid a kind of collision with the mystical at some <laughs> point, right? Because yeah. the world you know, the world of consciousness, the world that one's exploring, the world that's, you know, fundamentally mysterious and vast and infinitely malleable, it can't really be squashed into a purely materialistic or purely secular framework. So one doesn't need to adopt the symbols or the um, language of a particular spiritual tradition. But it seems at some point one does need to to go beyond beyond the worldly. Like our, when we say secular, what do we mean? We mean using the language and the reference points of our contemporary world, and those are inherently material, materialist. Right? We live in a world of material reductivism. Or reductive materialism. I can't remember which way around. So uh, we live in this sort of science. If the religions have become largely irrelevant, the science has taken over, right? Our, the science has become the cultural discourse, the cultural authority. And in that sense, science actually fulfills the same function as religion does. We've got a creation mythology called the Big Bang, etc., etc. Et uh, and you just run up against the limitations of that. So just like religious stories have their limitations, right? You read the Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and that stuff, it's like maybe it has some poetic inspiration in there for you. But if you really try to think about God and the world and seven days and Adam and Eve and apples, it's like that's you know, you run up against the limitations of that story. 
And similarly, you run up against the limitations of the scientific materialism story that consciousness is somehow just a property of the brain and we're just here by some kind of miracle of evolving atoms that organize themselves into amoebas and then lizards and then monkeys and then us, Mm -hmm. you know, and then here we are, the pinnacle. (laughs) One, two, three, four, five. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that you find a better story, which might be a Buddhist story or something else. It's more that, oh, to go beyond any of the stories to existing in a sort of state of wonder at the miracle that trees grow, the miracle of being human, the miracle that there is consciousness, the miracle that there is anything at all. And to be able to exist in a kind of wonder at that inevitably has a sort of a mystical quality to it, a quality that can't be reduced to to a materialist or reductive description. So you might you know, it might be that yours is the language of poetry, or it might be that one adopts the language of a tradition, you know, like Buddhism, because you know, Buddhism has, I think, done a really good job of mapping and describing that territory, because it's so orient. It's not orientated around a set of beliefs or a set of ritual behaviours. It's mostly orientated around practices for exploring consciousness, and that's why I would say that's its USP as it were. That's its remarkable point. But, you know, I totally understand. I myself share that same reluctance to a certain extent. I don't want to just use Buddhist language it because they can be reductive in themselves. As soon as you, oh, this is a Buddhist teaching, well, you've alienated a big chunk of the people in our culture who might be listening to those things. That's why I'm interested in it as a Wakeist rather than Buddhist, because suddenly, oh, I can get on board with that. Yeah. And I like what you're saying there about the mystical collision, essentially. So the thing that kind of happened with me, and happens like with many kind of people, at some point, this kind of feeling where there is something more or there's something to explore, or some sort of question beyond, which of course affects our lives to the extent that it does. Essentially, what what you're talking about is the kind of awakism offers some tools and some guidance as a way of exploring that question, if you say, is its its value to to what you were saying there? It's USB essentially. Yeah, and a map of, you know, we don't have very good maps of consciousness. Otherwise, we've got good maps for career. We've got maps of, you know, and we've got really. Good, I mean, science gives us really good maps of, you know, for engineering. If you want to build a bridge or an iPhone. Don't use Buddhism for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) use physics. But similarly, if you want to explore the territory of consciousness, the exact opposite is true. You know, use the right map for the right territory. So use physics for building bridges, but don't. I mean, you know, neuroscience is really interesting. And a lot of Buddhists get excited now because the findings of neuroscience map very beautifully onto Buddhist understanding. And likewise, neuroscientists get excited about Buddhism. And that's a nice conversation to have. And I don't want to be dismissive because I think it's a very useful conversation to have. And a lot of people actually have gotten into meditation because they there's a sort of neuroscientific convincer that can show oh look when people meditate this is what happens in the brain the default uh, network goes quieter the fight flight mechanism relaxes you know qualities associated with peace and well-being light up in the brain center etc etc so that's good to know that but personally i don't really care about 
all of that because I'm not really interested in what's happening in my brain. I, I can't tell what's happening in my brain. My brain's that squidgy grey thing right between my ears. I'm, but I can tell what's happening in my mind. And that's different. Now, in a, a scientific reductionist model, we equate the mind with the brain. We think our mind is in our brain or is in our head. But actually, where's your mind? You know, where's your mind? And as a contemplative question, that's, you know, beautiful. And it, why is it a beautiful question? Because it's utterly unanswerable. Nobody's ever found where their mind is, you know. The best answer, if you will, this is the best one I can come up with. You, where's your mind? It's here. It's here. So you can explore mind. You can explore consciousness as in its subjective immediacy, right? The feel of being here. The fact that there's experience, right? The fact that I can hear you speaking and that I can feel my body sitting, right? Oh, that can be explorable. And various contemplative traditions, and I would say probably most particularly Buddhism, has mapped the territory of exploring consciousness with the same kind of genius that engineers have brought to building aeroplanes and that Apple has brought to building phones, you know. So just use the right kind of genius for the right kind of job. And Buddhist genius is the one for <laughs> consciousness. So like taking the example then of the cardiologist you mentioned earlier, because I guess part of the thing is what you're saying there, you know, that sounds kind of really enticing and PD, but then equally I can hear a voice in my head that's going, fuck, you know, that sounds like that requires me to go live in a cave. I've got to go somewhere, remove myself in its entirety, you know, in entirety to you know, somewhere completely different to be able to ponder that. That becomes the stuff of my life. But like the examples you were talking to earlier is that there is a way of finding a kind of middle ground where there is space to explore those and equally to be responsive to the everyday stuff of my life and those things can coexist I don't, that's like well like i said i don't think you get to choose that you know you take a step and you take another step and you see where it leads you and in those two examples i gave it didn't lead either of those people to the contemplative cave it led one to a, a radical change of circumstance and lifestyle etc because they were awoke to the fact that they weren't living in line with what they really cared about and it led to somebody else you know, a radical change in the inner life, but no change in the outer life. In my own case, it led to, the, you know, to the more kind of archetypal sense of just like running away from the world and going and living in the Himalayas for a few years. You know? But there isn't a right way or a wrong way to do that. And the good news is you don't need to decide, right? It, it, you'll, it, because in each of those three cases, we weren't doing some noble thing. We were doing the thing that felt like it became clear was the thing that was in the led in the direction of happiness and you know the rightness and sanity so if you you might be giving something up to follow your you know what feels most true for you but the good news of that is if whatever you're giving up if you're giving it up in the service of that which feels deep and beautiful and worthwhile hey that's easy then it's easy to give up the little petty stuff if you know you're giving it up in the service of the most important thing the problem is most of us have no idea what the most important thing is no idea what really lights up our heart and soul what really 
feels like to live in accordance with our values. And therefore, the idea of giving up oh, this comfort over here or this situation over there feels threatening. Because it's like you can't let go of anything if you don't know why you're letting it go. If you fixate it, if you think that thing's really got it, you, you, you can't let go. What's that? There's that famous Buddhist story of somebody running over a cliff. And I can't remember the story now, but basically they run over a cliff and they fall off and they're hanging on by a little, like a root, little tiny root, just sticking out of the cliff. And the root is giving way and there's down below there's sharp rocks. And suddenly the person who's never had any religious faith before gets struck with this overwhelming, you know, calling out to God to save them. And, oh, you know, whatever celestial being there might be out there, please, if you just save me, just tell me what to do. Just give me a solution and I'll have faith in you forevermore and etc. etc. And then they hear this voice, you know, from the heavens, suddenly the evidence of a celestial almighty being. And the voice, you know, they're hanging on this root, dangling from the cliff. And the voice comes, just let go. <laughs> and then the response, the person says, uh, is there anyone else up there I can talk to? <laughs> yeah, I need a different view. Yeah, yeah. So even if we, you know, that sense of we're invited to let go into, uh, that, you know, that actually even that sense of free fall in life, you know. Ah, the relief of letting go from holding on to something that's weak, actually, and brittle and unreliable. But if you believe in that, if you believe in that, it's very hard to let go. And then if you actually, when you actually start to taste some possibility, you know, Vincent, the example of the person I would give, wouldn't say it was hard for him to go along those steps. It became obvious. Oh, this, when something really speaks to us, it's obvious. You know, and that's always the truth. You know, it's really, if you really fall in love with somebody, you don't have to second guess. Oh, well, should I go out with them again? Do I really want to? It's like, oh, you know, you, the, the heart speaks for you. If you discover something that you really just see has the potential to to deepen your understanding of life and meeting with life, you don't really need to second guess that. So, of course, some people go along in a much more gradual way and fits and starts and they do see some potential in meditation, but then they also see a lot of potential in, you know, lying in the morning, and not getting up. <laughs> much more potential in that. <laughs> you know, so it's not that you, one should go along quickly or one should go along slowly, that there should be a radical change or there should be a gradual change. You know, I would say it's just, but if, like any of the stuff we've been saying today, if there's some flicker in there of, oh, that, that sounds, there's something that sounds right in there or something that sounds helpful in there, something that sounds that kind of, that you recognize as a sense of possibility in there, check it out, check it yeah. out, take a step. You don't need to, and you can't plan the path. You take a step, the path will make itself. And to that path, those, those steps, given the kind of potential enormity of that, those little steps, and a little step might be what? So tomorrow I meditate for 15 minutes or 10 minutes or something. That's a valid little first step to take or big next step to take. And just the, the practice in that way is your route into this potentially huge map of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Because for some people, like, that's enough. Well, for some people, not meditating at all is enough. Just no interest. That's fine. For some people, 
you know, just you dip your toe in the water and you, you, you use an app for a month and then that's enough. And you say to people, oh, yeah, meditation is quite good. I did it once. Yeah, I did it once. I did it for a month or so. Okay. Right. And then for other people, it's like, oh, I really see the possibility of there. But, you know, I nevertheless go on slowly and I sit for a, every day for a week or so, but then drop it for a while. And then I think I want to get back into it. And, you know, there's a bit more of a sort of tortured process of in and out. And Okay. You know. And then for other people, like the Vincent example I gave, it's like, bang, you know, just one discovery and that's it. And you can't really say why people go along in those different ways. It's not, you know, it's mysterious, right, in that sense. I mean, you know, a Buddhist explanation would be karma, you know. Which doesn't mean some necessarily some cosmic thing related to previous lives, but just, you know, what it is that you're ripe for or what it is that you're looking for in a given moment is different. And also different people's capacity. Some people, they're just, their makeup is, they're, they're very decisive. It's like some people, they decide to stop smoking and that's it. They stub out that cigarette and they never smoke again. And then other people, oh, they need programs and patches and hypnosis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, so so if there is that seed of curiosity, if there is the kind of thing, I remember a phrase you spoke of once, this idea of teachings and practice and teachings or the other way around. So if there is the, if there is this seed of curiosity, if there is this kind of, this questioning, this kind of interest, it's that, isn't it? Then teaching and practice and letting the seed go where the seed goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's the willing, if there's the wish and the willingness to explore, then explore would be a shame you know it would be a shame to just be pulled around by one's own uh, reactive patterns for the rest of life and then suddenly die because <laughs> because that's what's in store for us otherwise and so if there's the wish and the willing and the, the vision that oh there's a possibility to do things differently then hey explore and how wonderful that there are apps and youtube stuff and books and here we are i can promote my books here and you know and online platforms so i you know you and i are both involved in sangha live this online platform where we have live meditations every weekday etc plenty of ways and maybe you can put some of those resources in the in the show notes or something yeah so you have a book coming out what's the book it's uh, just came out yes and it's called awake where you are which talks to all of this and more yeah it's i mean it's i certainly like to think it's much more than just a sort of how to meditate book it's got a lot of emphasis on you know the fact that this is it right and how to attend to being here in the whole variety of situations. So it gives a lot of attention to the stuff of life and exploring our psychological processes and what goes on in relationship and all. So on the one hand, it's a kind of pointer. It's an accompaniment for contemplative life. And on the other hand, it's gently pointing out and pointing out again this kind of vision of a free life. Very good. Well, we will definitely include all of that in the show notes and then all of the other various places where people can find you. Just so you can, so, so Sangha Live, you've mentioned other places where people might find you. MartinAylwood.com. That's my website or at MartinAylwood for Instagram, etc. Or Mulandashav, which is the centre where I live and teach you know, super intense boot camp retreat, a meditation retreat. (laughs) (laughs) For the bus drivers. (laughs) Here in southwest France. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Martin. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Nice to talk with you and hear your questions. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Martin Aylwood. 
If you like what we're doing here on Peripheral Thinking, go to the website, register, sign up, and I'll keep you posted every time a new conversation goes live. Uh, you'll find all the information. If you search up buddhaontheboard.com and look out for Peripheral Thinking there, you'll find everything you need to know about these conversations. And of course, if you're interested more in Martin's work, all of the information's in the show notes. You can find links to his own personal page. The organisation that I part own and run with Martin, Sanger Live, Sanger.live. And if you like what we're doing, you know, please feel free to share. If you think anyone would benefit from this, from hearing this conversation, please point them to it. And likewise, any of the other conversations, please feel free to do the same. We really appreciate having you along. We really appreciate your support. We look forward to connecting with you next time. Bye-bye.